Well, good morning once again. <clears throat> if you, uh, if, for those of you who don't know the room, uh, my name is Pastor Nathan McKendry. I'm the student and young adult pastor here. I'm preaching today instead of Pastor Dennis, our senior pastor, who is preaching today, just not here. Uh, so rest assured, he is still doing his job, uh, preaching the gospel today at a photography conference. Uh, he, he every year typically uh, feels called to preach this. Uh, it's something that uh, John Wilson has asked him to do, and so he's there doing that uh, this morning. And so you get to hear uh, from me. Now, at, some of you are laughing over there. <laughs> Yikes. Well, I'm going to start off uh, today. Before we dive into the passage, I want to uh, tell you a brief story uh, about my final semester in my undergrad. Now, during the, the final semester of my undergrad, I, I graduated in December, right? And so I had one fall semester left, and I, I needed uh, an on-campus apartment to stay at, but they usually try to put you in for, you know, a year, and I, I needed a roommate, right? That was kind of how it worked. And my friend Connor, he was a really good friend of mine, uh, and he needed one semester to live as well, because in the fall, he was not graduating like I was, but he was going to be getting married. And so he was only going to be able to live uh, in that apartment for just a semester, just like me. I would graduate and go, go back home. He would get married and move in with his wife and continue uh, school. So we're living together for this uh, this one semester, and we're in an on-campus apartment that's two stories. So the bedrooms are upstairs, and we've got the kitchen and living area downstairs. And one night, uh, or one early morning, rather, it's about 4 or 4.30 in the morning, and we are uh, woken up by the doorbell. And this wasn't a simple... Um, Ding dong. It, some of you have kids and you've experienced where they'll just ring the doorbell constantly. And so it was like 10 doorbell rings in the span of like three seconds. So we, we woke up, you know, as you would. And we, we wake up to that immediately followed by pounding on the door. I mean, hard pounding, uh, you know, almost shaking the, the building. I was, I was like, what is going on? And, and as I laid there, the next thing I heard was silence. And then, I hear Connor's bedroom door open, and he runs down the stairs, and then silence. I'm thinking, what is going on? So I get up out of my bed. I walk over to the bedroom door, and then I'm just struck in the moment with, I, what, what, is, what am I supposed to do right now? I, is someone trying to break in? Is Connor okay? I don't, I don't hear him. He's downstairs now. And I'm just left wondering in this moment, what on earth am I supposed to do right now? And, and there are certain moments uh, in life that are just like that, that are just so shocking, so strange or, or amazing that we're just left in that kind of paralysis mode for just a moment, at least, where you're left wondering, what am I supposed to do? And those moments often require us to respond to them in some way. I couldn't just go back to bed, right? Because someone may be breaking into my apartment. I, I can't just ignore that. Um, and these happen... All the time. We see historical moments where it happens, right? When COVID-19 struck, despite our best efforts, we can't just ignore it, right? We have to respond in some way. Either we respond by, by going along with it, and, and maybe we need to wear a mask, or we've got to respond by getting upset at people wearing masks. We have to respond in some way, right? And so we, we, we had to. It's a historical event. It takes place everywhere. It affects our day-to-day -day lives. And so we're left in this place of a necessary response. And the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ is one of those moments, a historical, life-changing moment that requires a response. We, we simply can't ignore it. And this, uh, this week, we're actually beginning our new series. We finished uh, our study through the book of Galatians a couple weeks ago, and then we had Easter last week. And so for the next several Sundays, we're starting this new series, Resurrected. You can see it on the banners here uh, or, or up on the screen. But Resurrected, we're going to be taking a look at the next several weeks at the variety of responses that we see to the resurrection, right? So we, we see Jesus crucified. We see him risen again. We see the empty tomb. And we're going to pay attention to a few different stories, a few different people. And we're going to see just what all of these responses look like, uh, the resurrection. And so uh, as we start that new series this week, today we're going to be in the book of Matthew chapter 28. Um, usually when you hear a sermon from Matthew 28, it often comes from the back end where we get the uh, the great commission, you know, go and uh, go and tell. And we're not looking at that this week. We looked at that just a few months ago, back in January, and Cole preached on that. Uh, but this morning, we're going to look at the first eight verses. We're going to pay attention to just one gospel's account here of the empty tomb, and when the and when the women show up to see just this, and so I'm going to read through our our eight verses this morning, and then we'll go back through it and take a look. So, if you have your your Bibles, you can turn with me. Matthew 28, starting in verse one, it says this. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. Now there was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled back the stone and he was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow. The guards were so shaken by fear of him that they became like dead men. And the angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here for he has risen just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So, departing quickly from the tomb, with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. And that's all we're going to take a look at uh, today, really. But the book of Matthew, one of our four gospel accounts that we we find in Scripture, right? He spends... 20 chapters, okay, the 28 total chapters in his book. He spends 20 chapters on the birth, life, ministry of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, right? Then he spends seven chapters, beginning in verse, or chapter 21, he spends seven chapters just on the last week of Jesus' life, including his crucifixion and his burial. And here in chapter 28, we get like 20 verses of his resurrection. Right? So, so there's a lot crammed into this, this one set of eight verses. And so I, I want us to just take a moment and assess the situation. Okay, let's just see, because there's a lot of shocking, amazing things going on, and we're just going to take a look at the situation. And, and, and first, I want to point out, everyone in this passage, usually when we read the resurrection, they always seem fairly surprised by what's occurring, right? I mean, dead man rises from the grave. That's surprising news. That I, I'll give them that, except that Jesus had predicted this three times. And that's, that's just what Matthew's gospel is saying, right? Three different times in the gospel of Matthew. In chapters 16, verse 21, it says, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. He predicts it right there. This is chapters and chapters ago, halfway through the book. 
In chapter 17, he says, And as they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed in the hands of men. Son of Man was a a nickname he basically gave himself. He often referred to himself as the Son of Man. They knew him as the Son of Man. It says, They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. Twice now, he's predicted. To his disciples, he told them, I'm going to die, rising on the third day. Chapter 20, while going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside privately and he said to them on the way, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised. Three times in this book, we see Jesus predicting his death. And yet, are all pretty surprised by this news that the tomb is empty and Jesus is risen again. It's kind of amazing in this passage that they are so amazed. It, it's like Jesus said he was going to do this. Let's move on. There was also a violent earthquake, which is always exciting. There's always excitement when there's this violent earthquake. Uh, the book of Matthew loves to, loves to talk about the things that the earth does, right? And, and just the previous chapter in chapter 27, we see you know, a violent earthquake there when Jesus dies and darkness covers the land. Dead people rise from the grave and, and the, the temple curtain is torn in two, right? That's all very exciting stuff, That just the violent earthquake stuff that happens. And we see a violent earthquake here in this passage as an angel shows up. And an angel shows up, right? An angel appearing is always exciting and it's always a cause for fear. <laughs> they, they always say something like, don't be afraid, right? They, they show up and I just, I don't want to see an angel. Oftentimes in, in movies and TV and, and culture, we see angels that, that look so lovely, so beautiful. I don't want to see a real angel, right, Matthew? We don't because they're going to be terrifying, okay? Because they always show up and they always have to say, don't be afraid. So an angel shows up, which is not the first time we've seen this in the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew has kind of angelic bookends. We see it here at his resurrection. Angels showed up at the beginning to talk to Joseph, to talk to Mary, talk to the shepherds, right? If you look at uh, Luke's account of of the, the, the birth of Jesus, right, we see a very detailed account there. So these angels show up, and Matthew specifically in his gospel, he is very concerned with with his, his readers, right, who's, he's really writing to a Jewish audience. He wants people to understand, who read his gospel, that Jesus is divine. And Jesus is the son of God, son of Yahweh, the God, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He wants them to understand that he's divine. So Matthew makes sure that he includes when angels show up. Now, this angel shows up and he moves back the stone and then he sits on it, which, again, pretty crazy. But let's, let's pay attention to that for just a moment. One of the things, I, I, I saw it a few times on, on Facebook this week. In fact, I think Shane Pruitt was one of those out there who posted uh, something uh, along these lines. And I, I appreciated it a lot. Um, and I felt very affirmed because it already made its way into my notes. Because several scholars and, and commentators uh, see this as well, that when the angel shows up and moves the stone out of the way to, to show the empty tomb... He's not doing that to let Jesus out of the tomb. Jesus isn't there. He says that. Jesus isn't here. Right? They're there when he rolls back the, the stone. The stone was not moved to let Jesus out, but it was moved to let the women in. It's followed by this command. You're, you're here looking for Jesus. He's not here. Come and see. So he shows up. He moves back this stone, 
And he invites the women in, but not just invites. The, the Greek there has an imperative, come and see, which is just, you know, English Bible nerd for like a command, like get in there, go take a look, right? It's not, it's not a go take a look if you'd like. It's a get in there, go and see. So he says, come and see where he lay. So it's really, I'm just struck when I first read that this week about the, the grace upon grace that we see there. They were told three different times at least by Jesus that he would rise again. And an angel shows up and lets them know he's not here, he's risen again. Why is it necessary for him to move the stone away? It's not. He doesn't have to move the stone away. He moves the stone away as an act of grace. Come and see. Go take a look. The tomb's empty. They should just take his word for it because Jesus predicted it. Right? Jesus is going to show up multiple times after this, in fact. It, they, they leave this tomb just to run into Jesus. Right? So the empty tomb there is really just an act of, of grace. And, I, and as I read that this week, I wondered, what are those those stones in front of the tomb that sometimes block us from being able to really see the empty tomb? What are the things that get in your way from just seeing the resurrection for what it is? What stops you from seeing the truth of that empty tomb? We had students at youth camp last year. Three students were, were saved on the Thursday before youth camp ended, and Friday being the next day we'd go home. Two of these students I had been praying for for months, hoping that God would do just that, remove whatever's stopping them, remove the stones from their life so they can see clearly the empty tomb, so they can see Jesus risen again. And, and I asked all of these students the question, What's preventing you, right? Because I asked all of these students the same question on Thursday. We go home on Friday. They had heard the gospel, I promise you, so many times throughout the week, right? Because it's Thursday. They've heard it at least 50 times. Because I, I, Shane Pruitt was our speaker. He preaches the gospel, and he was preaching it all week long. We, we had talked about it all week long. They had heard the gospel. All of these students had been attenders of our, our midweek youth Wednesday night services. So they'd heard the gospel from me. They, they were all there when Kevin was still here, the, the youth pastor before me. And so they had heard the gospel from him. I can, I can attest, I was there when he preached the gospel. So they knew the gospel. So I just asked them, what's stopping you? What's preventing you from just believing? And I, I got a different answer from each of them. One of them, there was a misunderstanding on baptism. He thought it was baptism that had saved him. He had been baptized as a, as a younger kid. And so he thought he was saved. I explained, no, 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 baptism is simply a, a, a symbol, if you will, of our, of our faith. We do it as kind of a first act of obedience. That's good Baptisty language of me, right? First act of obedience. And, and so upon that, I asked him, what's preventing you from, from believing and accepting Christ as your Savior? And at that, he answered, nothing. I'm, I'm, I'm good. I just was confused. Yeah, I'd love to accept Christ as my Savior. And just like that, he prayed to receive Christ. The second student, when I asked him, what's preventing you? He just looked at me and tears filled his eyes and he said, I don't know right? And so we had a, a conversation about it. Realistically, it was, it was fear probably that was preventing him more than anything, but he was able to, to get past that. And so he prayed to receive Christ. Nothing ended up being, and he ended up stopping him. He, he just didn't know. And the third student was, was the, it was the most unique answer I got to that question. Very thorough answer from a, a, a middle school boy, mind you. 
So what's preventing you? And he had several answers to give me. <laughs> he, he, he didn't say nothing. He didn't say, I don't know. He said, well, I know what my friends are going to think. I know what people will think of me if I become a Christian, if I accept Christ. And I'm, I'm worried about how they'll see me. I'm worried they you know, treat me differently or they won't talk to me anymore. I'm worried about what they'll think. He also was worried that it was just going to be hard. He said, I, I know that if I, if I do this, if I accept Christ, I'm like, my lifestyle is going to have to change. I was like, wow, we hadn't even gotten to that part yet, right? Like, like yeah, Jesus changes you when he saves you, right? And he knew that. And he's like, I'm, I'm worried about that. I know that I'm, that's going to be hard to be a Christian. And then he also was afraid of just, he was concerned about church hypocrisy, about what about all the other Christians who, who hurt each other? What about the churches who have hurt people? And I, I, I hear that one all the time these days. That's kind of the number one. Um, I, I see it specifically in other young adults, just that, that number one dagger that we like to go to now when we don't want to believe is the church is, you know, a bunch of terrible people who hurt other people, you know, and, and you know, that, that's a, a barrier to us, Right. But if that is a barrier to you, what the church has done to you, what other Christians have done to hurt you, I simply want to ask you, but what if it's true? What if the tomb was really empty? What if Jesus really rose again? There's nothing I can do to stop that. I can't like just conjure up a Jesus and throw his body back in the tomb, right? Because I've, I've upset you or I've hurt you or maybe I've done something awful, Right? We see that all the time in the news. It, you know, I, I see in the news way, way too often some youth pastor out there who's, who's arrested for, for molesting children. And that is horrible, and it grieves me, and it causes crises of faith galore everywhere. But just because there's pastors and churches and other Christians out there who do horrible things, does that change the fundamental truth of what happened at that empty tomb? If Jesus rose again... We've got to get past those things, right? If Jesus rose again, they're not good reasons for not believing. Maybe they're, they're reasons you have against the church and going to church, fears that you'll need to work through, but ultimately, it can't be a blocker for you to simply believe. And it wasn't for this student. At the end of the conversation, he was able to work through all of that, and he prayed to receive Christ, and we had three students come to salvation. And so I, I wonder, what are those stones that just getting in your way, those barriers. We, we, on Tuesday nights, we pray for the lost, and that's what I always typically do. I always default to that. I just pray, God, would you just remove the things that are preventing my friends from believing in you? Would you just remove those things from their life? I encourage you to have those same prayers about your own life or your own friends. But let's keep going. Let's pay attention now. That's the situation. That's what's going on in the passage, right? We see the angels. We see the earthquake. Jesus had, had predicted his death, so we're getting some context here. Let's just look at the responses. We've only got three categories of response that I want us to pay attention to this morning. The first one's the earth. Right? As I talked about before, there's a violent earthquake when the angel shows up with the good news. The angel shows up with the gospel, right? With the first First angel to show up with the news that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. First time this news reaches the world and the whole earth reacts. We see this violent earthquake. There was an earthquake in the previous chapter at his death, right? Dead man rising from the grave, temple torn in two. What a place to be when all of that's happening. That would be very, very exciting. We've also seen in scripture, especially in Luke's gospel, we see Jesus 
saying that if people wouldn't worship him, there's a, there's a situation that occurs where people are worshiping him and praising him, and, and these people get upset about it. They say, Jesus, stop them from doing this. It's blasphemous, Lord. And he says, if they were to stop, the very stones would cry out. The very stones would worship him. If even the very earth, the very earth reacts to the arrival of the good news of Jesus, if even the earth responds to that, then so must we. We have to. I mean, if there's ever an excuse for not responding to someone, it's like a rock, right? Why? Because it's a rock. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't go talk to rocks and expect the rocks to talk back to me. Do you? If you do, I'm surprised. I'm sorry, but I, I, rocks don't talk back to me. But even the rocks don't get off the hook, according to Jesus, that they, they're going to be praising his name if we stop, right? The very earth reacts. We have to as well. Like I said the, before, there's just some things that happen that just demand a response. You can't get away from it. Um, I'll tell you another little story where uh, my wife loves antique shops, and so I try to be a good husband and take her to antique shops. In fact, I took her to one yesterday with, uh, with my sister. Her and I and, and my sister went to the one over here off Denton Highway. I've taken her uh, up to Justin to the Kimberly's uh, uh, antique shop there. And there was one time we were in Roanoke and we were visiting an antique shop there. We had just had lunch with uh, my cousin, his, his now wife, I think they were dating at the time. We cross the street from this, this eating location. We go into this antique shop. Now we enter into this antique shop and I don't get two feet in the door before there's, I, I notice there's some ladies standing over in the cash register area. They're behind the counter and they're, they're chit-chatting and they stop chit-chatting. One of them looks over directly at me, points to me and, and, and speaks very loudly in front of the whole store. Who do you belong to? <laughs> should, I, should I say Jesus? I mean, it's the correct answer, right? It's a good gospel conversation. Like, am I ready for that? I don't know how to, but she's kind of, she's kind of broken the rules here. Like, why is she talking to me? I, I shouldn't have to, to talk to her. When we go into like a Sam's Club and you see the like line of salespeople, you walk by them, right? You look this way. You, you don't want a conversation with them. If salespeople come to your door, you don't open the door, right? Because you don't want to talk to people. We, we've gotten more afraid these days of talking to people. And so she's kind of broken the rules by talking to me. I'm like, I can't leave. My wife wants to go in this antique shop. Like, I, I can't just turn and run. I've got to answer this. Her question demands a response. I couldn't just ignore her. She's going to ask it again, right? And everyone heard her question. Come to find out this lady who I had never met before in my whole life, she recognized my face. Now, if you don't know me, I'm not a famous person, all right? I'm a youth pastor in Watauga, Texas. I'm not a famous person, okay? <laughs> so I... There's no real good reason why she should recognize my face. And, and yet she recognized it because, come to find out, she was friends with my mother uh, some time ago. And now my mother keeps a very detailed account of my life running on Facebook. And so this lady scrolling on, on her Facebook feed will occasionally see my face pop up. And so I was familiar. So, so I walk in the door of her antique shop and all, all she thinks is, I've seen that face before. You, who do you belong to? And I've got... To respond, we eventually figure out just how she knows me. But that question, who do you belong to? It's a question I couldn't get away from. I had to respond. The news of the resurrection of the empty tomb, the gospel demands a response. The good news is not something you can ignore. It's not something you can do nothing with. It's not something you can just hear and shrug off. That's not how it works. It's life 
life-altering, world-changing news that demands a response of some kind. You have to respond to it. When we share the gospel with people, they're no longer, right? If they've never heard the gospel, there's no argument, there's no special theology or scripture you can pull out to say that after you've shared the gospel with somebody, that there's any kind of excuse for them. You've removed any possibility of an excuse. They have to respond. Have to. You have to accept it or reject it, but they have to respond. There will be no excuse when we get to heaven about that response. So the whole earth responds. Let's pay attention now to the women. The women and, and their response here. Now, when I brought this up in staff meeting, we always talk about the passage for the week in staff meeting together, and, and we all get to throw input on it. So this week, I, I led that because it was me preaching, and Matthew and Victoria were with me, and, and of course, Victoria had a lot to say on the women, and I almost wish we could invite her up here and she could talk about it, but she would never want to do that. And so, uh, But I encourage you to talk to her about it, because she'll talk to you about it, right? Because the women receiving the good news of the gospel is a very, very interesting part of the passage, right? Because a, a woman's testimony is in this world, right, uh, that we're looking at in the scripture, this ancient world, woman's testimony wasn't worth anything, right? That they had to go to men. In fact, when we, the gospel, right, is kind of first, Jesus is born of a virgin woman, Mary, right? And so, God shows up to the earth via woman, right? Shows up and tells her this. And if you'll pay attention to those passages, they don't usually believe her, right? When you read those gospel accounts, even Joseph was like, I'm going to have to divorce her quietly because she's clearly slept with someone or she's gone crazy. I don't know. But, you know, the angel had to appear to Joseph and tell him, you should believe her. She's telling the truth, right? Because they're just not trustworthy <laughs> for some reason, right? They just weren't considered trustworthy. And and yet, in every single gospel account, we see the good news of the gospel of the risen Jesus of the empty tomb first shared to women in every single gospel account that we've got, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of them, the women are the first ones to discover Jesus is alive. God clearly values both men and women. Jesus kept uh, female disciples along with him, right? They may not have been one of the 12, but the Marys we're looking at in this passage were following him constantly, right? So God clearly values both men and women. Paul later confirms this in his letters. And so we see that the gospel is entrusted to both men and women, right? Both are called to share the gospel. Both have that command. The tomb was already empty. It was open not to let Jesus out, but to let the women in so they could see that good news and they could share that good news. But let's pay attention to their response. Like I said, their response is really what I want to focus on. They're afraid. We see that. In verse 8, we finally get kind of their emotions in the passage. Going quickly with fear and great joy, they go to tell the disciples the news. So I, I was wondering, what's so different between them and the guards, which we'll talk about in a minute, but there's a difference in the fear present, right? And I thought maybe, maybe the fear that they've got is more of an awe-like fear. You know, like my wife and I love to go to Taos, New Mexico. There's this beautiful uh, place called the Rio Grande Gorge, and I like to uh, go on a little hiking path, and I like to get pretty close to the cliff and just kind of look over, and my wife's grabbing the, like, cuff of my hoodie and pulling me back like hey moron look at it from over here and, and I, I want to see it like I, I have a healthy fear that I know that if I fall down that that's bad right but I'm also just impressed <laughs> and so I've got this all oh, like fear so maybe you know the women are just in awe right 
Eh, maybe, but I, I think I think if you keep going, I think there's I think there's something else that breaks through here because I think they're probably pretty afraid at the angel, and there may be a moment of awe in there somewhere. But I think there's there's more fear than anything. I think what happens is that they have a belief that breaks through that fear, and belief will lead to this great joy, right? Fear and great joy, and so they go and they tell that uh, they they tell the other disciples. So their belief enables them to run while the guards are like shaking in their boots, right? And, and the women are able to run and go tell the good news. Notice they do that immediately. They go, the angel said, go and tell them. They're like, all right. And what, what they go and tell. See, our belief leads to obedience. There was, there was one time when uh, me and several other classmates were hearing from a palliative care chaplain, and uh, the palliative care chaplain tells us, um, he's talking about what to do. He's trying to teach us what to do at the end of uh, someone's life when you're with someone on their deathbed, right? Which is, as a pastor, I, I want to know that. I want to know what I'm supposed to do, how I'm supposed to behave, what I'm supposed to say to someone. And one of the things he, he tells us, I don't remember any of his other advice, honestly, because I heard this one thing, and it totally threw me. He said, the last thing I would want to do is share the gospel with somebody because it might cause them distress, might cause their family distress. And I thought, what? I come from First Baptist Watauga. Here you've taught me to preach the gospel, right? And this guy's saying, don't do it. I told that to my wife and you'll love her response. She said, wait, so if you know that they don't know Jesus and you don't share the gospel with them, unless they specifically ask you to. He said that was okay. We just smile at them and send them off to hell? I thought, right? Like, if I believe that, how could I not share the gospel with them, right? I finally decided that advice is baloney. You share the gospel with somebody on their deathbed, right? You make sure that they know Jesus, that they know there's a loving God who cares for them. But you see, what I eventually decided is that I don't, that guy probably sits in one of two camps. It's probably not the first. The first camp is that if you don't share the gospel with somebody, right, maybe you just don't care about them, right? There's plenty of people in your lives that you probably don't like very much, and you're perfectly fine with the idea that they're going to hell, right? If you believe in the scripture, right? If you believe in the scripture, I. What I suspect is the man was either universalist or he had come to believe that there was no hell or, or some other various uh, mixture of things, which basically lets him off the hook from the uncomfortable thing of sharing the gospel with somebody who might react very poorly and they're on their deathbed and their family's present. That's an uncomfortable situation, right? Like, I, I don't want to share the gospel with somebody just to get negative feedback. That's uncomfortable. Have to, because it's... No, we have one job as Christians. I <laughs> share the gospel. We can't deny that. And so what I suspect is that there was simply, that was a symptom of unbelief. But the women here believed. Both women and men here are struck with this fear. But the women who, again, in this culture are often considered the weaker sex, they're the ones who were able to take this good news and run away and tell the people about it while the battle-hardened guards are like on the fetal position in the ground, scared. Right? This, they had a belief there. I think everyone was going to be scared, shaking on the ground like dead men. But the women believed, and I think that belief led to joy, that led to obedience, and all of that conquered the fear. Now let's talk about the guards. These guards are present at a tomb to guard a dead man. That's not normal. 
There's no real good reason to guard a dead man's body unless there's like, unless you're afraid of vandalism or, or theft, I guess. But, you know, the irony here is that, like I pointed out earlier, it seemed like all these people forgot that Jesus had said he, he predicted three times that he was going to come back on the third day. But if you look in the previous chapter, the chief priests and elders did not forget that. They didn't believe that he would come back the third day, but they, they remembered he said it. So they sent these guards to guard this tomb so that no disciples would try any funny business and take his body and trick people into thinking he'd been resurrected. So they put two, like, battle-trained, hardened guards to, to guard a dead man. And when the angel shows up and the violent earthquake happens and all of this stuff starts going down, these Guards become so full of fear that the guards who are there to guard a dead man become themselves like dead men, only the dead man they're guarding is no longer a dead man. Did I lose any of you? Is that not so much irony? <laughs> right? They're guarding a dead man. They become like dead men. But that dead man's no longer there. He's alive. So overwhelming fear like that and it was overwhelming for them. The women were not overwhelmed, but the fear overwhelmed the guards. And that can lead to clouded decision-making. I started the sermon with the story about my roommate and I, Connor, and we, the, the pounding of the door, and, and he runs downstairs, and I was left at the door. Well, I did open that door. I walked downstairs. I stood at the top of the stairs in the darkness and said, Connor. He's like, yeah. Like, okay, Connor's alive. Good news, number one. So I go down the stairs. <laughs> we start inspecting the front door and it turns out the front door has taken a beating. I mean, the hinges are just about broken off. It's probably one more good kick from just falling over, right? And we look at the door and it's unlocked. I'm like, oh no, 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 no. Right? Like I always lock the door before going upstairs and going to bed. I knew I had locked it. So this door is unlocked. That means what? Somebody could be in the apartment. So in a moment of fear, both Connor and I are standing right beside the kitchen because that's where our front door is. We run into the kitchen and we grab weapons, right? We grab knives. And we're broke college kids. You know how many knives we had? Three, right? We only had one steak knife. Connor got to it first. (laughs) He, He grabbed the steak knife. I'm like, great idea. I grabbed the next knife, butter knife. And then we proceed to inspect the house and look for this supposed intruder. How silly, right? I'm walking around with a butter knife. I could have grabbed something heavy, maybe the toaster, walked around with the toaster. I could have grabbed a coffee pot. I have a, a lockback knife up in my bedroom that I know there's no one in my bedroom because I was there when they were trying to break in. I could have run upstairs and grabbed that, right? I could have taken out my phone, called the police. I could have walked outside, could have gone next door. All these other things I could have done, but instead, Connor and I are walking around, me armed with a butter knife, looking for an intruder who's strong enough and capable enough to nearly break down our door. (laughs) And and so fear leads to clouded decision-making. I think you'd agree, right? You probably all have stories of when fear clouded your decision-making. Sometimes fear just paralyzes us. We don't know what to do. Right? We're just left sitting there thinking, I don't know how to respond to this. These guards are left shaking on the ground. Ultimately, if you read on in the passage, they go on to lie about the resurrection. They tell the chief priests and elders, and, and they concoct the plan that we'll just lie about it and say that you fell asleep on the job, which somehow is supposed to look better for them, that they're asleep on the job versus shaking with fear. But see, their fear can lead to shame, can lead to 
It's darkness, ultimately. And see, in our lives, we're going to face situations like that, which are so, so shocking, so, so awe-inducing, so fearful, right? They're going to rise up fear in us, and it's going to be overwhelming fear. And the only difference that we're going to have on that decision is our response to the empty tomb is how we'll, that, that, that's going to dictate how we handle that fear, right? Belief in Christ is what ultimately will lead to great joy and obedience. We just, we end up looking at the world differently, right? Unbelief will allow us to continue in that overwhelming sense of fear. There's a, a movie I really enjoy titled uh, Signs. It stars uh, Mel Gibson. It's just about a family living in a world where mysterious lights start appearing in the sky, and so they think they're on the cusp of like an alien invasion, right? These are the kind of movies I like, I'm sorry. And, and uh, th- there's a moment where, where the main character speaks to his brother. He's talking about these mysterious lights in the sky. Now, I'll just briefly read you the quote. It says this, it says, people break down into two groups. When they experience something lucky, group number one sees it as more than luck, more than coincidence. They see it as a sign, evidence that there is someone up there watching out for them. Group number two sees it as just pure luck, just a happy turn of chance. He says, I'm sure the people in group number two are looking at those 14 lights in a very suspicious way. For them, the situation is 50-50. Could be bad, could be good. But deep down, they feel that whatever happens, they're on their own. And that fills them with fear. There are those people, but there's a whole lot of people in group number one. When they see the 14 lights, they're looking at a miracle. And deep down, they feel that whatever's going to happen, there will be someone there to help them. And that fills them with hope. And see, what you have to ask yourself is, what kind of person are you? I love that quote, specifically just that, that moment. It's my favorite part of the movie when he has that conversation. Because I'm over here thinking, yes. I know the difference. The difference in how you handle overwhelming fear and scary situations is whether or not you believe in the empty tomb, right? Because hope, joy, belief will break through that overwhelming fear and unbelief will leave you in that fear, thinking you are on your own. You can try to trust in other things, other people, but ultimately they will fail. You've probably got experiences where All of those things in turn failed at some point. But Jesus does not fail. Jesus conquered death, the very thing we tend to fear most. So we're going to enter into a time of response. And I want want to encourage each of you to respond in some way. If you've never responded to the empty tomb, I'm telling you, this requires a response. If you've never responded to it, then as we sing this last song, ask yourself what's stopping you. You've been listening to a Sunday morning message from our services here at First Baptist Watauga. Our family's mission is to exalt the Savior, equip the saints, and evangelize the lost. If you want to know more about First Baptist Watauga or need to reach out to us for prayer, go to fbcwatauga.org and let us know. In all things, to God be the glory, honor, and praise.